Hello, everyone. I'm Alicia Swamy. I'm here with Eric Johnson, Keely Severson. We are Exposing Mold. Today, we are talking about the shortcomings of trying to lump many illnesses under one name. And we're going to start with talking about ME, CFS, and we'll move on to SIRS. Well, um, I can tell you that when the um, Homes Committee decided on a new name for the entity that was um, confusing them so much, which they couldn't really decide if it was um, Epstein-Barr virus syndrome or something completely different. So they sort of made it vague and ambiguous, chronic fatigue syndrome. And <clears throat> the closest outbreak of um, in similarity of description that anybody knew of was something that happened in Sacramento in 1975. Dr. Eric Rill at the Mercy Carmichael Hospital had um, several hundred people become sick in the hospital, in the system. And it was very similar to the uh, royal free disease, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which he knew about, or at least had some vague awareness. Uh, it was similar than it hit mostly um, nurses, mostly women that it hit mostly in the hospital system, that it came and went fairly rapidly at a fairly short incubation period, and people weren't recovering. So this was a lot like the uh, Lake Tahoe mystery illness, only his name was inf infectious venulitis, painful veins, or infectious painful veins. And um, that was the closest thing that he could find of what people were describing, was a very painful throbbing, hurtful sensation of the veins in the legs, particularly in the legs and feet. And he had pictures of a swollen, um, really massively distended veins, which is not something that we saw at Lake Tahoe so much. But still, the manner of the outbreak, of his outbreak, was kind of similar. And it got to be known as the um, Mercy San Juan syndrome. So I called up Dr. Rill to ask him his experience and um, kind of put the pieces together, find out how the CDC had treated his disease because they came out, did an investigation, left, and it was the same thing. They just dropped it. And so I told Dr. Rill that uh, the CDC wasn't very interested in the Lake Tahoe mystery illness and showed every signs of want wanting to drop it. And over the course of my uh, discussion with Dr. Rill, I I got a sense that he was really angry about this new syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome. And I asked him straight out why. And he said, because by changing the name, they uh, wipe out all earlier evidence. And that includes my outbreak and all everything that I've done for the last 10 years, gone. And I'm going, oh, no, researchers wouldn't do that. They want to solve everything. They'll come and they'll look at ours and we'll, we'll get together and incorporate your evidence as well. And he actually said that uh, that's not how it works. The whole point of the name change is to wipe out old evidence and nobody is interested in going back. Say that's regression. That's um, just dwelling in the past. We, we need to keep going forward. And I go, well, I won't, uh, I won't let that happen. When good researchers come to investigate chronic fatigue syndrome, I'll, I will make sure to lead them back to you so that we can put everything together. And he said, this whole chronic fatigue syndrome name is actually a trick. It's a deception. 
says what they're going to do is every time something becomes really solid, provable, verifiable in what was named chronic fatigue syndrome, your outbreak, chronic fatigue syndrome, anytime anything comes up to being checkable, somebody could come and test it and find out for sure, they're going to change the name in the name of progress. They'll say, well, now that we've got more information, we need a better name. Well, the trouble with that is that makes all the evidence in chronic fatigue syndrome speculative all over again for the new name. It's like having to reprove the whole thing, reset the game, start over at square one. And I, it took me a while to really understand what he was getting at, how this name change is actually a ploy to keep the entity a moving target, to keep wiping out evidence over and over again. Now, you'd think they wouldn't be able to do that with chronic fatigue syndrome because they know what, who and what the original cohort is. But I grew to understand that what they did is they said, well, chronic fatigue syndrome, that's rather broad and vague. So we'll start incorporating more things, other clusters, sporadic cases, other people will draw all this in. And that means that instead of having an original animal to check the name and the evidence against, you're now checking against all the broad, vague people that got brought in under the same rubric, the same name. And that's exactly what happened when I said there actually was evidence in the original 160 and in the original chronic fatigue syndrome cluster. And it, it is verifiable. You can come check it. You go, oh, no, that we can't do that because that wouldn't apply to everybody who has a chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis. Does that so- make sense? Yeah. So in the 70s, so Dr. Rill already knew this. I guess you probably approached him after CFS happened. So maybe in the 80s, 90s, early 90s. So he already knew like this is sort of the general practice of what science and researchers do at this point in time is they something happens and there's original evidence that would point to maybe finding a solution. And then these people go and they change the names in order to control the information in these disease entities, right? So for example, ME and CFS, they've done this. And then we're seeing this again, right? Currently, there's a documentary coming out about ME. um, And they, I don't know the context, so I'll have to go ahead and cue everyone up on that. But they want to put all the diagnoses under one name or something or wipe long COVID and all that stuff out. And let's just make one name to make it easier. Yeah. In the name of progress, they want to simplify by making one name and one diagnosis. Well, the central clue, the central uh, focus of their study is fatigue. So that's not what the Royal Free Disease was coined for, myalgic encephalomyelitis. It was for an outbreak of 292 nurses that got sick at a London hospital in 1955. And strangely enough, not the uh, patients, just the staff, maybe a few patients, but hardly any. So it it swept through the nurses and staff, but not the most susceptible, hypothetically, immune-compromised people who are in the hospital because they're sick. No, it hit the healthy people, exactly the opposite, and no children. There were no pediatric cases. So this was a very unique demographic. And now, under this one-name concept, they want to say that they're going to sweep up ME, CFS, fibromyalgia, long COVID, everything else under one name. And all that does, 
as Eric Rill explained to me, is make it unsolvable because there's no way that one name can apply to everybody. That's like saying we're sick. Hmm. To all our mold folks listening, what does that sound like to you guys? Doesn't that sound like SIRS, Eric? Yeah, toxic. How do we how do we apply all of this historical confusion knowledge to our our audience members here and and who who are parading around and calling themselves SIRS advocates and are praising the name SIRS, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. What are your thoughts about that and what Shoemaker has done to to this diagnosis that isn't actually a, a, a legitimate medical diagnosis, right? Uh, no, it's, as some officials have called it, uh, a pseudoscientific sounding syndrome. It, it sounds very impressive, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. No, a doctor can't just make up a syndrome. Uh, an authority, authoritative medical body has to all come into consensus before they can enter any new official research instrument syndrome into the literature. And this has not been done for SIRS, and it's not likely to be done. But Dr. Shoemaker is presenting it as if it's already a done deal, and you can use SIRS interchangeably with any other official research instrument. Patients don't seem to understand that. But when Dr. Shoemaker wrote Desperation Medicine, it was primarily towards an illness caused by biotoxins, pisteria, and he thought perhaps Lyme. And he did include a lot of the same suspects that he's incorporating now, but he had a special focus on toxic mold and stachybotrys in particular. And he read about the Lake Tahoe outbreak, seemed to recognize it for what it was, and was the first and only doctor the only one who analyzed the original chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak sufficiently to venture that maybe this was mold, maybe this was biotoxins. And in that, he was absolutely correct. So it was stunning to me that this doctor finally, after 20 years, had done what every doctor, every chronic fatigue syndrome doctor, or anybody who wanted to find out what it was, what they should have done. Ask at ground zero, ask the people that started this thing. Dr. Shoemaker finally did it. And I thought, well, that's fantastic because he's going to carry this through this project to completion. He's going to help elucidate how toxic mold set this chronic fatigue syndrome research instrument in motion. And I had great confidence that he would proceed to do that because there's supposed to be a certain amount of glory and prestige in solving a syndrome. That's what doctors are shooting for. If they can move the science forward, help solve a famous research instrument, that is power and influence for them and probably a lot of NIH research funding too. So I never thought that Dr. Shoemaker was going to back out of this project, but somehow he kept broadening his SIRS concept and bringing up other elements into being equal with toxic mold, like brown recluse spider bites or blue-green algae, uh, Lyme disease. And it just fell apart because there was no direction. There was no goal of bringing any one of these entities to an ultimate resolution. He wrote in Desperation Medicine, 
about people getting sick on the Chesapeake from Fisteria, as bacteria in the water, and possibly toxins in the silt, cyanobacteria. And that seems to have been completely dropped. How can you develop a name, biotoxin illness, on one thing and completely forget about your original project? Uh, it's kind of weird to draw in more things so that you've made it vague and hard to solve, but to completely lose the original object and purpose of your investigation makes no sense to me at all. And that's essentially sending a, a message, nope, I've lost interest in this and I have no intention of solving it. It just seems more like a, a business move, right? When you are able to come up with the illness name and then you say it's caused by all these different things. So now I've opened up my business doors to a whole other list of patients and clients to come and take my protocol because it's all inclusive, right? Um, it seems more like a business move than it real than it is about really trying to help people zone in on what's wrong with them and then figure it out and and work through a solution that way. Because if someone is sick from hysteria versus mold toxicity, you're going to give them the same treatment, <laughs> right? So. Yeah, whether you give them the same treatment or not, if you know it's hysteria, you have the option to avoid it because you know where it's coming from. You know, it's making you sick. You can move away from it. But if you Treat uh, the well. I had hysteria, but now I call it SIRS, which is toxic soup from anything and everything. That doesn't give me any guidance on moving away from hysteria, now does it? And same with the uh, brown recluse spider bites. And I don't know anybody. I do know some people who had brown recluse spider bites. I don't know a single one who developed anything like SIRS. So I, I kind of like, what the hell is going on here? But in terms of the people who broaden their, their list of suspects, is it just so they can sell more product? It's hard to believe because they seem like good, sincere people. They want to help everybody, right? That's why they're doing this. No. <laughs> if you look at any researcher who came up with any particular theory for chronic fatigue syndrome or ME or even mold, you'll find that they started out with one thing because it was a really good clue and it showed up dramatically in some patients. So great, they've got a focus. And over time, that original clue seems to diminish, become diffused, and ultimately disappear. And they turn their, their name into another word for anything and everything. And it doesn't matter whether it's an enterovirus or HHV6, or EBV, or any bug you can think of, somebody always starts out good and winds up devolving into a useless morass of nothingness. So we're, <laughs> it's pretty, it sucks. It sucks for the people who get sick and then they have to wade through, okay, I have this one diagnosis, but I don't really know what the cause is. So what's, what's the battlefield look like now in terms of ME, CFS, and SIRS research? Like what, what, what do you see happening now? Worse than ever, completely hopeless. The patient community supports this toxic soup mentality. They think it's terrific. And the irony is the Center for Disease Control is fully aware that patients support this kind of thinking. So if they can ignore a clue for two months, they know that this really good thing that made 
news had some impact will start to be forgotten and the name will be extended to more and more things and they don't have to worry about it because eventually it becomes a bunch of people fighting together, fighting each other over their opposing theories and they neutralize each other. So they don't have to look into it. They don't have to do a thing. And there, I've seen writings of meetings, of reports of discussions in the CDC where they are fully aware of this breakdown process and they encourage it. Now, in terms of MECFS, I wanted to find out if there was any hope of dredging anything useful out of the ME or the CFS investigations. So I ask all the institutes, well, what about this clue that existed in the Royal Free Disease or this clue that was in the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort? And they all fight, they battle, they argue, they bicker, and they say, no, that doesn't matter anymore. We have moved on since then. And now MECFS is a broad name for everything, including long COVID. So it's hopeless. They have destroyed their cause. and. There is no proceeding forward from that. They've they've ruined themselves so completely. They've backed themselves into such a corner that the CDC knows they can bicker about MECFS for another 100 years and they will never get anywhere, no matter what they find. So my goal in this is, well, I could at least use the publicity from this controversy to tell people about the stacky botters in the original chronic fatigue syndrome cohort, and people can get some value out of that. Because toxic mold is a pretty big thing nowadays. Absolutely. So putting everything into one name is not good then? (laughs) (laughs) Guaranteed way to destroy your own cause. (laughs) It's just, it's mind blowing to me how, you know, the scientists and the researchers know, they know what they're doing, but then the patients like somehow don't really know that they're like defeating their own cause because they think they're trying to progress or find progressive information that's going to help them. It's just like, (laughs) it's like one big sociological, like crazy madness that's happening these days. I just, I don't get it. You know, are people just so sick that they just can't think properly and they can't analyze the situation? Because you'll tell people, you'll provide this information to people and they'll still want to fight with you. Like a patient will still want to fight with you. Like, well, no, that's old evidence. We're we're, we've moved on, you know, since then. So it's just, it's really interesting to see it all play out and how it has been playing out. Well, some people like Gidget Fabian and the Portland, Oregon uh, EBV association, they saw the writing on the wall instantly. And when the CDC tried to push this, horrible, vague name of chronic fatigue syndrome on us, they tried to publicize adding immune dysfunction into the middle of it. CFIDS, chronic fatigue immune dysfunction syndrome, which is actually a pretty good name. You'd think the CDC would have adopted it, but they did not because their goal was to remove the evidence of immune dysfunction and have everybody think of it as fatigue. And now when you look at people bickering about MECFS, what are they fighting about? Fatigue. Post-exertion malaise, not the immune abnormalities. So in essence, the CDC's goal of absolutely destroying patient community has been fully achieved and it was accomplished by the patients themselves. Like we're going to start the dirty work and then we'll have the patients do the rest for us and we don't have to do anything else further. We can just say that we're looking into it and 
allocating a budget when, you know, <laughs> the findings are nothing usually, right? Do they, have they ever found anything of value yet, Eric? Is there anything valuable that we can, that people can go off of? Um, the CDC and NIH never found anything valuable because they don't connect it to any original animal. Even when they claim they found something unusual, it doesn't take, it's got no traction because they say, but it obviously doesn't apply to everybody on earth who got a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome, so it's useless. So they know that they can dribble out little bits of things that look very interesting, but it doesn't take. There's no way to solve any particular cluster or any original entity because people don't agree on doing that. Mm. So they have, they've worked it out. They've maneuvered the patient community in a situation where they can find interesting little foibles of immune abnormalities and it will never lead to anything. So what you just described is sort of like what they did with like Jen Brea's, you know, world-renowned, whatever, critically acclaimed documentary, Unrest, where the CDC aired that, you know, there's some level of promotion and there was elements showing that, you know, mold is involved, but they decided to just ignore that because, well, Jen's just one person, right? It doesn't apply to everyone. Well, you bring up a really interesting case there because when Dr. Elizabeth Unger of the Center for Disease Control came out to Incline Village, I had a very nice long talk with her about um, mold and ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome, handed her a stack of evidence, old newspaper clippings, things about toxic mold, why it possessed the um, potential, the immune suppressing potential to have done exactly what we say it did. And Dr. Unger showed unrest at the CDC so that people could see this evidence and theoretically know that it exists. But there again, without saying the critical words, oh, by the way, this toxic mold was found in the original cluster that baffled Dr. Gary Holmes. The simple omission of saying that one thing that's everybody believed, well, there's all kinds of interesting things in this vague chronic fatigue syndrome, but we can't do anything with it because we don't know who it applies to, and it probably doesn't apply to everybody. So it backfired. And I, I think Dr. Unger is pretty smart. And she knew that if she said nothing, that that's exactly how it would be taken. And sure enough, when I asked people about um, toxic mold, and I explained to them that this was the direct clue that baffled Dr. Gary Holmes, who authored the CDC definition, they immediately rise to say, so you think that toxic mold applies to everybody with a chronic fatigue syndrome diagnosis? I go, of course not, because they gave the name to anybody with a tiredness and a headache. So it can't possibly apply. So there they've taken something that was easily a small puzzle that could be solved because it was a very narrow data set, the original cluster, bring it to resolution and made it unsolvable by submerging it in this morass of vagueness. Well, there you go. There's our uh, research and medical healthcare system at play, looking to destroy evidence, not build on it and try to solve anything. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they've made so much money off of this vague diagnosis, pushing God knows what on people. 
you know, maybe that's why they don't want to solve it because it just makes them so much money. I don't know. Well, there's a lot of um, vested interests that would be harmed if you had a distinctive, discrete, reliable test for sick buildings. Imagine how many buildings would have to be condemned, how many schools would have to be closed. It would be a huge mess. And so they wish to avoid that. And maybe it's true. Maybe the economic consequences, the upheaval of finding this out would be worse than letting it morph into the public consciousness slowly, gradually, the way they're doing. But that's not science. And that has not really helped anybody who could have benefited by knowing that their illness is driven by toxic mold. Absolutely. Well, this has been a great conversation, Eric. Is there any last tidbits of information you want to provide? Hmm. (laughs) Well, as as always, um, I'd like to remind people that science is, if you made it through high school science class or math, when in doubt, go to the beginning. This is basic science one, 101. If, if you get confused, if there's a problem, you go back and find out where the confusion began and how interesting it is that for chronic fatigue syndrome, this is the one methodology that all doctors, all researchers absolutely refuse to do. Well, hopefully that changes, but I'm not sure if that's going to change anytime soon in the near future. (laughs) Going back to basic science 101. (laughs) All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We appreciate you guys, and we'll see you next time. We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice, but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations, products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. As a friendly reminder, Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support, and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit ExposingMold.org for more information. 